I wrote a book called Going the Wrong Way, obviously because of going to ending up in Argentina rather than Australia. But I sort of realized I've gone the wrong way quite a few times in my life. I've taken the not the easy route, taken the harder route and enjoyed the journey rather than the, the destination. But I think very often we, as we get older, we reflect and see that a lot of times you strive so hard to get somewhere, whether it's a, an exam or a job or a, a career path that you're too busy trying to get to the, the destination that you forget about the journey along the way, you know. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer women. Are we wise women? Are we mavens? Are we crones? Hell yeah. And we're also still curious, fun-loving, interesting, the list goes on. This podcast is for you. My guests are folk who have a message for our demographic. And if you want to hear a specific message, let me know and I'll find the guests. This podcast is also a conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. I try and let my guests have the greater say, and usually we fit in a good laugh or two. Listen in now to today's guest. I always have a specific reason for chatting with guests on this podcast. Most often, I'm thinking, hoping, the subject will be of interest to someone in the audience. Well, hopefully more than someone. Every once in a while, the guest is of specific interest to me. Today's guest is one of those. Northern Ireland in the 1970s. I was never there, but my cousin's husband was shot because of his political leanings. Hopping on a bike, motorcycle, to feel the freedom of the wind and the road that rarely ends, I began that adventure at age 48. In the early 2000s, I followed the adventures of two movie stars as they rode their bikes around the world, down one set of continents and up another. It brought tears as I watched because as much as I would have loved the experience, I knew I didn't have it in me, physically or mentally. Today's guest spent a chunk of his adult life doing all of the above, except no sponsors, no state-of-the-art motorcycle, no press, no support team, no fixers, no situation training, no social media. He left Belfast in 1979 on a cafe racer, Motoguzzi, and I can't wait to hear more. Chris Donaldson, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Hi, Agnes. Great great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, what I know of your story is both mind-blowing and blood-chilling. Can we start at the beginning? What was life like in Belfast through the 70s? Well, looking back, it was pretty crap. (laughs) <laughs> it was, uh, when you're growing up as a kid you don't know anything else so it's um, what you have is what you get sort of thing but there was bombs going off and bullets flying around the town um, we just got used to it went on going to school and went to school in the centre of town and we used to really, uh, sort of look out to see, see the blast going off around the city the smoke going up around the city centre uh, on the old afternoon my father's shop it was a furniture shop just down the road from the school. It got blown up several times. But you just got on with it um, when you're younger. I suppose, I guess when we got to older teens, we realized there must be more to the world somewhere else. So it ignited a spark, I think, to, to get me out of town. 
And for some reason, I decided to go to Australia on a motorbike. <laughs> Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I was okay. into motorbikes at the time. But, but let's talk about, okay, Belfast to Australia, motorcycle. We're not talking a touring bike. We're talking a cafe racer. D- tell us about the bike. Well, I had this Motocosi Cafe Racer, which I had when I was about 20, because I was 19. And it was the best bike in town. I thought it was the coolest dude around. So, you know, when you're like, you get so passionate when you're that age, and I thought this bike could go anywhere. And to be fair, I was right, it did. Um, but it's not the bike you would choose. You would choose a BMW or a touring bike, which I thought was very boring. Uh, I wanted to do it with a bit more style and panache than that. But... Um, I hadn't quite realized that the main problem with that was I didn't actually go to Australia at all. I ended up going everywhere else bar Australia and ended up in Argentina of all places. Okay. So uh, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. We got to 1979. I got to London in November. And just after I got there, the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini took over the American embassy in Tehran. If you remember that far back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. After three years of my planning to go to drive to Australia, ride to Australia, I couldn't go. I already left home, so I couldn't go home again after being away for two weeks. So I decided, well, I'll go south. I'll go to South Africa. So basically, um, after careful planning, years of careful planning to do this once-in-a-lifetime journey, I ended up uh, without a notion where I was going, no planning, no, no idea where what was ahead of me. And it's hard to imagine these days with the internet that if you want any information, you just Google it. But if you remember back in those days, you had a guidebook, and the guidebook was out of date by the time you could read it anyway, probably. But I had no idea where I was going. <laughs> if it's okay, can I just throw some place names at you? And if there, something comes to mind, uh, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the trip? Yep. Okay. So, so you mentioned Iran. And then the, I take it the next was the Sahara Desert. Now, was the Dakar even a thing at that point in time? No, they had the first Paris Dakar that year, I think in 79. So it was, a, it was a novelty, the whole idea of riding a motorbike across the desert. It's pretty much unheard of. Uh, adventure bikes and off-road bikes were pretty much unheard of as well. So Motocosi Le Mans certainly was everything you don't want to have in a desert. It had it, you know. <laughs> Um, but I managed to get across the Sahara. It took about, I think it took a week to cross about 400 miles. The worst, worst day, I think we're driving all, riding all day in a convoy. We covered about 10 miles. So you can imagine. Yeah, no, I can't, ride. as a matter of fact, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm talking to you. <laughs> so you had a convoy at least. You weren't out there in the middle of the heat and the sand all by yourself. No, that would have been sheer lunacy. It was bad enough. as if belfast to australia isn't a a bit of lunacy uh dear okay so so you made it through in a in a week 400 miles in a week wow that's crazy you kept on going to south africa and kept on going uh um went through sudan through uh uganda just after Idi amin had just left so it was a bit chaotic there there was a civil war going on there uh, I was quite lucky in a way. I just seemed to keep missing civil wars. I got through Rhodesia just after the war there, just before it turned into Zimbabwe, and ended up in um, South Africa in the middle of apartheid, uh, which was a bit of a dead end because nobody was going there or coming back from there at that stage with the sanctions. 
they managed to get a job in a sailing yacht coming back to Europe, um, which was pretty unique. Uh, I don't know if you're into sailing, but there was a Volvo Ocean around the world race, which was, it was a sort of predecessor of that. And guys would train for years to be a, to get on a boat on, on that sort of race, whereas I was, I'd done a bit of dinghy sailing. <laughs> so it was sort of out of my depth, to say the least. Oh, dear. I want to go back to your trip through Africa. You know, you're talking about either just missing or, you know, preceding a, a, a war zone. Did you have the same fear that most of us would have had coming from Belfast, where, as you said, bullets and bombs were, were part of life? Did you recognize at the time that it could be dangerous? Yeah, I knew it could be dangerous. I suppose I was probably a bit more aware, a bit more used to guns, people with guns walking around the place than than other people would on reflection. Some of the situations I got myself into, such as the likes of Uganda and Tanzania, I mean, even Africa was pretty wild in those days, quite a few countries. So I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't do it these days. I wouldn't do it now in my old age, put it that way. But, the petulantness of youth, you know, you think, you think you're indestructible. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps, perhaps that's what it takes. Oh, my yeah. goodness. As you say, you get older and wiser. Now, you entered a, a yacht race or you crewed on a yacht back to Europe. What happened to the bike? Well, the race was uh, fell on my feet there. The race was being sponsored by a shipping agent, a shipping company. So they said, where, where do you want me to send the bike? And I said, well, what about America? They didn't go to Australia. So I got it sent to Los Angeles and picked it up there three months later. So it was at this stage in the game, I was realized it was traveling for the sake of traveling rather than traveling to go somewhere. It was really good, you know, so the beauty of the trip was at that stage, you know, it was a journey. 99% of the time when you go on a journey, there's a destination in mind. You're going to get somewhere, pretty obviously, but I was just traveling for the sake of traveling. Just for the, to enjoy the days as as each day unfolded, um, I had a destination in mind, but it didn't really matter whether it was America or South Africa or wherever it was going. So that was part of the beauty of it. it was a real sort of nomad, as I feel like. Yeah, it's interesting. I interviewed a, a woman a few weeks ago who did a similar trip, and she's my age, and she just had a friend camperize a car, so not even a van, but a car. And she did the same thing, no real destination. And it was really soul finding, shall we say? <laughs> um, yeah. Just because of the people she met and the things she saw and the places she went. Yeah. No, and whenever, um, and the reason we're talking is uh, I wrote a book called Going the Wrong Way, obviously, because uh, going to ending up in Argentina rather than Australia. But I sort of realized I've gone the wrong way quite a few times in my life. I've taken the not the easy route, taken the harder route, and enjoyed the journey rather than the, the destination. But I think very often, we, as we get older, we reflect and see that a lot of times you strive so hard to get somewhere, whether it's a, an exam or a job or a, a career path, that you're too busy trying to get to the, the destination that you forget about the journey along the way, you know? Yeah, yeah no, I, I hear that. But you left South Africa on a yacht. Where did that yacht end up? Well, the yacht ended up in Rotterdam about okay. five weeks later after the rudder falling off in the middle of the Atlantic with a few adventures there too. <laughs> <laughs> so we managed to get through that. Um, 
Well, we got back to Rotterdam by hook or by crook, and then I flew back to flew over to the States to Los Angeles to pick up the bike. And the trouble was I hadn't had time to prepare the bike. It had just driven down Africa, so it was pretty wrecked, and the clutch didn't work. Uh, so I couldn't uh, to change gear. I just had to jump on the bike, push it, and kick it into gear. So I had to drive the whole way from Los Angeles up to Seattle to where a friend lived with no clutch. <laughs> so every time the child stopped at the set of traffic lights, I had to put the bike into neutral and then get off and push it to start it and then jump on and drive off on it again. So it was a bit hairy going up the West Coast. But how did you so change gears? Like, <laughs> I just crunched it into gear. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, does it sound like a car when you grind the gears? No, a bike, a bike actually, you, you can click, hit and kick into gear much easier than a car. It would be harder in a car. This is the way the gearbox works. The hardest thing was actually just getting moving, going from zero to five miles an hour, so you kick her into first. Oh <laughs> so it was a bit hectic. So I was a bit annoyed because I missed the whole west coast of America, really. I just had to keep going as much as I could. Um, I got up to Vancouver and spent a few days there with a friend. And then... Um, I think the problem was I lost my passport and my wallet, so I had to cross Canada as quickly with about, with about $50 in my pocket. So I had to go to Ottawa to get my new passport. I think I made it across in six days, which was pretty... God. I hadn't quite realised how big Canada was. It was yeah. <laughs> about 3,000 miles. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember driving in a car from uh, the West Coast here through to Toronto in about five days. And my wake-up call was when my oil light came on. And I went, wait a minute, I just had an oil change a few days ago. And then you realize, yeah, that you've just driven all this way. So, uh, yeah. So in Seattle with your, your friend, is did yeah. you get the clutch fixed? Got the clutch fixed, yeah. Oh, and got the bike done up a wee bit, so I was ready to rock and roll again. And then I decided, uh, so I never heard of South America at school and so on, but it was one of those distant places that really didn't have much in common with. Spoke a different language, spoke a different culture, different culture. So I thought I'll head down that direction after that, after working in the States for a few months to try and replenish my funds, <laughs> uh, which was funny enough, the bike, traveling, whatever, the main problem was it set off on a four month journey to Australia with about a thousand quid, thousand pounds. Which is probably about five thousand dollars now. So after a year, I started the lack of funds was the main problem. Yeah. yeah. So South America, what was your route through that? So yeah, I went down through uh, down to Texas and then across the border, terrified of Mexico. After hearing all the stories that everybody hears, but like as always and you get to these places that you hear so many bad stories about and you people are as friendly as you like you, you know you you're you build up this p picture in your mind you're going to be it's going to be horrible and it turns out they're the nicest people you can meet you know yeah. obviously there's bad guys there too but it was a great experience driving through central america down to panama now hitched a ride hitched a ride on a uh, old dc6 cargo plane going to median right in the middle of uh, Pablo Escobar's rain. So sort of blind, blindly landed in the Medellin. Again, more guns and more machine guns, everybody walking around. So but this stage, I was getting very used to being followed around by people with machine guns. 
Good Lord. My thought was, because I have another monitor over here with the, the cover of your uh, book on it, is it probably did help that you were just some young guy on a bike. I mean, you didn't look wealthy. You weren't driving a fancy car. You know, you don't look like you have a lot of money in your back pocket in that picture. No. Well, motorcycles are, everybody, they're quite an emotive sort of form of transport. You either love them or you hate them. Most people are sort of fond of them to some extent. So they're a great way of breaking down the barrier, whether they're a policeman or a soldier or a, just somebody at the side of the road. You can talk about bikes, talk about where you've come from. It's clear, it's obvious that you're not, in a, you're not a local, so people take an interest. So it's a great way of getting, getting talking to the local people. Whereas if you imagine if you're in a car, the chances are you may be with somebody else as well. So the windows are up and you're, you have an immediate barrier between you and the, the outside world, if you like. Um, and traveling on your own as well, it's, it's much easier to get to talking to people because you have to. You know, you're you yeah. not going to a restaurant or a bar or wherever you are. You can sit on your own if you like, but you've got to start, sort of pick up a conversation with somebody at some stage. So it's a, it's a great way of traveling on a motorbike on your own, though it's, it sounds a bit scary because you don't have the security of that pane of glass in front of, between you and the outside world as well. You're you're there. You're you stop and you're in the middle of the of that situation where you are. You know. Yeah, we called it the cage. You're on the bike yeah. or without the cage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and I remember stopping. You know, even just for a meal or coffee or something. And uh, yeah, you do get talking. And I found too because. In those days, there weren't a lot of women on bikes. Yeah. Um, people would talk to me just because of that. You know, you take the helmet off and you see a woman of, you know, 50 years or whatever uh, riding a bike, and especially a big one. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's basically, it's a breakdown. Of, it's a break, it's something to talk about and something to yeah. get, get the conversation going, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure yours looked like it had a lot of miles on it. Like, I mean, did it have some... Well, at that stage, I've been trying to look after it because that was my my ticket home was to sell the bike, and I was how to get my funds to get home again. So I was trying to keep it as good as I could. But obviously, by the time I got to South America, it was hanging together with bits of rope, and so on. The suspension was crap, was collapsing, and the everything was wearing out. And then I got hepatitis myself when I was in Ecuador, so um, that sort of killed the trip a wee bit because I had to stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks. And started to run out of money, and the bike was dying off. And eventually, got some money shipped sent over from home, and tried to take the train down to Buenos Aires because the uh, I couldn't probably couldn't ride anymore. Of course, I got a few miles in the train, and there was a storm that washed the track away, so I had to back, back in the bike. <laughs> Perhaps it's a good good thing you were traveling all over the world. Otherwise, what people would have said, "Oh, here comes that Chris Donaldson." <laughs> there well, it seemed to be every time I decided to go somewhere, there was some something that would stop me going there. You know, and end up having to go somewhere else. You know, but and, uh, and yet you didn't have the uh, common sense to say maybe I should listen to the universe. No, <laughs> no, no, <that> never happened. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah. So I got back in 1981 and um, I started writing a book at that stage. And then I guess life got in the way. I think nine out of 10 people who start writing books never finish them. And um, somebody else was a, another journalist, a middle-aged journalist, had done something similar and wrote a book about it. So I thought, well, nobody's going to be interested in my story anymore. But I hadn't realized, I suppose, at that stage, it's 
it was only looking back on it, I realized that the whole journey was very much a coming of age journey for me. It was 21 years old, sort of boy to man, if you like. Um, it was a, a lot of experiences that sort of changed me along the way. So I was able to look back and whenever I did write the book in the 60s to use my the sort of view of experience to see what affected challenges and so on that had on me and how that, how that changed me as I went along. So I think the book I wrote when it was 60, even though it was 40 years later, this was a much better story than I would have done if it had been 20, 23 or 24, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did did your friends and family, when you got back to Ireland, sort of say, hmm, you're a far better man than you were when you left? Not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would go back, it probably, it's probably quite the opposite because it's, after an experience like that, it's quite hard to fit back into uh, normal life again. So you have to sort of readjust yourself again. Probably took six months to even just to fit in again, and people aren't really that interested. And in, it's if you're telling a story which is about having a game of golf that afternoon, they can relate to that. But if you're telling a story about driving across the Sahara Desert on a motorbike, it's so unrelatable to people. It's not really a conversation. It's like a conversation stopper rather than a, something of interest. So people say, "Oh, that's very interesting," and then go back to the rugby or something like that. You know, the uh, so. Stories like stories, if, if the story is too far away from somebody's viewpoint, it's very hard for them to contribute to it, I guess. Well, the reason you're on this podcast is because I would far rather read your book. I have a saying that uh, watching golf is like watching paint dry. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and I probably shouldn't have said that on podcast. I'm going to have a whole bunch <laughs> of people <laughs> writing me nasty notes. Oh, dear. Okay, so you found time to get married, have a family. That was in Ireland, was it? Yes, um, mainly in Ireland. Uh, got married, had a family, got divorced, got married again, had another family. <laughs> uh, had a couple of businesses, was in property, got hammered in the crash 10, 15 years ago. Ended up living in Dubai for eight years. Um, came back three years ago. Lived in Dublin a bit. Uh, so I had a fairly careers in property, furniture, IT and stuff like that. So I've jumped and jumped around a few different things as I've got older, and then I've got to sort of sixty friends who are re retiring and start thinking, well, what's what's it all about? You know, if you, when you write a book about what you did when you were twenty one, you start reflecting, well, what's what's happened in the last forty years? You know, so I suppose that's where we're coming into the, the baby boomers. It's we're all coming to that stage now. So I realized that I'd never actually got to Australia. And one of my friends said to me, uh, you never you never got to run, I'll have another go. So I had to still have the same Motoguzzi. I brought it home with me in the end, never sold it. So I thought, well, let's take the old bike and my old self and see if we could ride to Australia two years ago to set off. So it's very much a sort of, if the older first trip is a coming of age story, this is a coming of old age story because it's sort of, reaching retirement uh, it's really a challenge to see if I could still do what I used to do when I was 21 you know but uh, I but I take it that this traveling companion this time was younger than you well he was a, he's about 15 years younger than me and uh, ironically nice he had a new bike and um, we got to Greece and then he decided that it wasn't for him so he decided to come home 
So after talking me into riding Australia, riding the motorbike bike to Australia, he decided not to go. <laughs> so being a stubborn old git, I decided, well, I'm going to go on on my own. So I mean, one of the obstacles at this age is having time to stay away from your family and away from work and so on. So what I was able to do is dry, ride for two or three weeks, park the bike up somewhere, come back home, come back to work for two or three months, and then go out again later, two or three months later and do another leg so when i wrote to say wrote to australia i actually did it in about six different legs first to greece and israel and dubai then um, pakistan and india and nepal and then to brisbane so it took about a year and a half and over probably rode for about 12 weeks over that period of a year and a half so it was it's a, this is a different set of problems you have when you're older. You have more money than I had when I was 21, but less time. When you're 21, you've got time and all the time in the world, but no money. So Now, on your a, second, I just need to ask, on your second trip, were there any wars, any earthquakes, any <laughs> catastrophes? No, no, I was a bit more organized this time. I've got a bit more... <laughs> sensible in my old age, obviously. <laughs> I but did manage to get through Iran. I nearly got stuck there because there was a few problems with getting in, getting visas and getting visas to get in and visas to get out again. The nice thing about coming from Belfast is you can have an Irish passport as well as a British passport. Okay. American, Canadian and British passports aren't terribly popular in Iran. But again, as I was saying about Mexico, Iran is the country we hear all the time as a bogeyman it's a terrible place to be but actually of all the places i've ever been probably the iranians are the most friendly uh hospitable people to travelers that have met anywhere they're really pleased to see westerners and want to take you to their home and feed you and put you up and very uh accommodating very 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 friendly people which is accentuated because it's the place you're more, ner more nervous about going to in the first place. So that turns out it's completely the other side of the scale. So it's quite fascinating, fascinating country. Now, this is going to be a question coming from a woman, but were there ever any concerns about being invited into somebody's home for like to sleep over or whatever, uh, a bed? Or is that just um, the nervous woman in me talking? <laughs> No, well, I did have a, <laughs> did have a, a bit of an occasion in Syria that I had to fight off a, uh, <laughs> a rather amorous, amorous customs guard, but you'll have to read the book to find out that story. <laughs> oh, no. So I know where you're coming from in that one. <laughs> okay, well, now I've got it open. I'm going to have to click buy when I'm done here. <laughs> I've, uh, I've yeah. resisted. I've resisted buying it just because, you know, I didn't, I want you to tell the stories. I don't want to do too many leadings. Yeah. No, you have to buy the book for that one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, you do put yourself on a limb when you're traveling on your own. Obviously, you've no backup. You're on your own. Uh, you're tr sort of trusting people. You're going to somebody's house. And very often, though, you don't have a lot of money. You've got a motorbike. You've got an awful lot more than they would have, you know, in places like Africa and India. But generally, I find people are much better than you expect them to be. They're they're hospitable. They're friendly. They they look after travelers. And I really have very few bad experiences along the way. As I say in Iran, I'd stop there was some of the petrol stations you could only use a credit card, but you couldn't use a Visa card or Mastercard because of the sanctions. So you'd ask a 
somebody to, could you put petrol in my tank and I'll give you the cash. And very often they would just say, fill up your tank and tell you to go without paying you, giving you, without taking the money, just go and enjoy our country, you know. So it was quite the opposite, really, of being in fear. But there's a couple of occasions, I do remember, funny enough, in Iran as well, trying to find a hotel. And the guy said, follow me in his car. So drove through these back streets. And eventually, after five minutes, he stopped in this back street. And uh, then there's another car pulled up beside him. I thought, oh, God, what have I got myself into here? And it turned out it was his brother who could speak perfect English. He'd, he'd bring him up and brought him over to, to show me, take me to the hotel that I wanted to go to. So, but yeah, you do you do put yourself out in a limb a wee bit. I've just probably been lucky or maybe have a bit of a sixth sense to get myself out of situations that I should, before they've evolved into something terribly bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. My, my daughter actually told the same story about being in Morocco and she would have been in her early 20s. Fortunately, she was traveling with a, with a, a girlfriend and got in a cab to go to some hotel that this fellow was broken English ended up in this back alley. And I guess they're just holding hands frightened to death. <laughs> and yeah. it turned out he just took them into this back door of the hotel and it was a beautiful hotel. <laughs> so it was like, oh. but uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's what adrenaline is for. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you did make it a, Okay, the last I read, and I, I've looked at so many different places that I can find you on the internet, is that you were awaiting the Moto Guzzi Festival outside Melbourne. Yes. Um, did that happen? It did happen. There's a guy who uh, has a, what he calls a Moto Guzzi Cathedral. He's a, Moto Guzzi's, like, it's an Italian brand, and like all Italian brands are very passionate about their, their product, and their customers are very passionate about their bikes as well. So this guy's built uh, what he calls the Cathedral of Motogos. He's there's a hundred years been in business for a hundred years, and he's got about a hundred models of each, more or less of each year, on show in his in his museum. So my bike is now part of his display at the minute. Oh, until that's I decide great. what to do with it. But at least it's getting the respect it deserves. My exactly. goodness, the, the story it, it tells. It is, yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it did very well. It's forty five year old, forty three year old motorcycle driving it across India and Pakistan and Nepal, places like that. Um, doing things to it I shouldn't do to. I should have been treating it with more respect, but it's uh, it's done the job very very well. I just have to work out how to get it home now. <laughs> Details. Is he interested in keeping it for as long as you'll let him? Yes, I mean he's been interested. As I say, bikes have a there's a certain camaraderie and a um, connection with people with the same type of bike as if you like. So there's a whole guzzy club. I've met people along the way, and the guys in Australia have been very hospitable. They've put the bike up and have said we'll keep it as long as we want. So it's been a great. Uh, it took me forty three years to get there, but I got a great welcome when I got when I actually made it. <laughs> okay, I have two questions. The first one is. Uh, beside your bike in the cathedral, uh, is there a bookshelf with like a hundred of your books that can be sold? He has a few books there as well, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Just, just that putting my marketing work. hat on. Okay. Uh, I guess this question I should have asked at the very beginning, why Australia? Just out of curiosity. Um, Probably I had a few relations there, probably in Australia and an Irish have probably got a bit of a connection. Just we've always, we've always taken our 
sheep stealers and uh, vagabonds have always ended up in Australia. Irish people always ended up in Australia or in the past. I had I would would have been able to get a job there, and work stay for a while. And it is one of those things that I reflect back on now and say, I think, well, if I'd left Belfast two or three weeks earlier, I would have got through Iran before the, the revolution. I would have made it to Australia when I was 21. I sort of think, well, if I'd made it there when I was 21, would have stayed, would have met somebody there, got a job, and my life could have been completely different just for the sake of leaving two weeks later than I intended to leave. You know, it's sort of, you think back on the the changes that have happened in your life and how much you try and plan things and decide what you're going to do. But other things just happen just by sheer luck or bad luck, whatever way you want to put it, directions you take. Yeah, I had an elderly friend at one point in time. And he used to say, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. And so I did it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and life's, yeah, and here you are now, all these years later, that's great. Okay, going to get a little personal here. Uh, life goes on. We don't get any younger. You have Parkinson's? Yes, yeah, so when uh, I was diagnosed about four or five years ago, and it's a very mild form of Parkinson's, very lucky that it's that has not a terribly strong effect on me. Still able, to, still able to function pretty well, and it seems to be fairly slow moving. But it's, it was a bit of a challenge. It was one of the reasons I think I wanted to do the, the trip was just to prove that I could still control my my body and my functions and my brain and do what I could do when I was 21. And I have seen a lot of friends my age retiring and going from so responsible jobs, running a company, running a business, running a, telling people, managing number, large numbers of people. And the next day they're golfing and twice a week and working in the garden. And I think I wanted to sort of show people that there's more there's more to life than that you don't just because you're retired doesn't mean you it's not the end of everything it's in a way it's the beginning of a, a new chapter in your life that you should be able to do more than you could do before you know as i say when you're in your 20s you've got time but you've you've got the energy but you've no money between 20 and 40, 60 you're too busy running a family buying a house paying for things and bringing up kids when you, by the time you get 60, you like to think you've got a bit of money and a bit of time and you should be able to go out and enjoy yourself. That's the theory anyway. <laughs> You'll appreciate the, the analogy that a friend of mine uses who's still riding, loves to ride. And uh, he talks about retirement as in changing the tires. You know, like if you're going to yeah. go and do the, the car, you've got to have a certain type of tire. If you're going to just do highways, you need a certain type of tire, that sort of thing. So that's what retirement is. You're retiring yeah. your, your, yourself. That's a good way to it. Yeah, because as you say, the word retirement is sort of indicates the end of something, you know, whereas it really should be the beginning of something, yeah. beginning of the rest of your life, you know. Yeah, I try to use the phrase instead of I'm retiring from something, I'm retiring to something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and more and more I've been hearing that people with Parkinson's too, as soon as they're doing something that they just love, it's part of his or her soul, it's like the Parkinson's just goes away. So uh, so that's kind of a nice thing. Yeah, no, I think constantly if you're on a motorbike, you're driving, you're riding, you're concentrating all the time. You're focusing on one thing. 
so the rest of the world doesn't really matter anymore because you have to stay alive and the only way you can do that is by concentrating 100% of the time <laughs> especially in places like India where everybody's out to get you <laughs> it seems like that way so it's I think it probably does uh, need to ask, ask a doctor but I think being able to focus focusing your brain like that does have a beneficial effect on you so is there anything that you haven't done that you want to get done well there's lots of things i want to do and i mean writing a book was never a, a really strong on my agenda in life i was pretty much flunked out of school and most of the things i did english especially so it was a great challenge for me to to be able to write a book and get it published and self-publish it and promote it and get it out there it's now got 1200 five star reviews it's um it's doing very well and i think uh, certainly if i can write a book anybody can write a book and everybody has their own unique story to tell i think uh, what i enjoy as a challenge is doing something that's outside my comfort zone to learn a new trade to learn a new skill or whatever rather than just going along in the same old golf 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 or cricket or whatever it is i like to do different things i never get very good at them but i do like the, the variety of being able to, to, to jump and change into different sports and different things well I, I think it's like you know having those really bad jobs when you're a young person if you just learn no more than you don't want to do that again then mission yeah. accomplished that's okay <laughs> true so what's next for chris donaldson well, as I say, I've still got a daughter still at school, so another couple of years um, to get that finalized on sort of chapter, if you like. But uh, I still have a motorbike and sitting in Australia. I'll have to get it back somewhere. <laughs> so we're looking to uh, maybe ship her over the west coast of the States or Vancouver, maybe, and uh, ride across the States and actually take it around, finally take it around the world for its 50th birthday, maybe. My, uh, on my 67th probably that'll be <laughs> oh dear any hard won wisdoms hard won wisdoms well god I suppose the main thing is um, never give up um, if you're on your own traveling somewhere especially in the third world and you you get a problem or stoppage or blockage or something in, the, in your way you, you nobody else to get you out of that situation. You've got to do it yourself. And one thing is top. My journeys have taught me is that whatever the situation is, you you've got to be able to be responsible for yourself and get yourself out of it again. I think very often these days we're so prone to expect somebody else to you know to pick up a phone and call somebody to get me out of the situation or call back, go back and do go backwards. I think. Traveling has taught me both determination and um, motivation to get somewhere. If you want to get somewhere, keep put your head down and try try again. Yeah, I like that. And try again, you know, because sometimes it takes. I'm sure. Okay, that didn't work. What What do I do now? What do I do the next time? Okay, other than the one chapter that we have to buy the book to read, tell us about your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said. Um, it's not just about it's called going the wrong way because it, it ended up in a completely different direction. 
in the world. Um, but it is about different challenges, and I like to think it's a story about how to, you know, we, we tend to uh, broaden the sort of health and safety. Everybody has to go do the same thing, do the right thing in the right time, in the right way, and follow the rules. Sometimes it's a bit more fun to take the wrong direction and see what happens rather than knowing what's going to happen. Um, as I say, one of the problems I think with the modern world is everything's so organized with with the internet age. We know everything was is ahead of us. Very easy just to follow a path which is predetermined. Yeah, through our careers and everything. I think it's lost a bit of loses a bit of the challenge of going going in the wrong direction to see, see what surprises surprises are in store for us, you know. <laughs> we're recording only the audio here but i can see your face and there's this little grin playing as you're talking about uh, the challenges you know <laughs> that's great the book's on amazon is that correct it's on amazon yeah audiobook uh ebook and uh, paperback okay um, good so yeah it's been a great reaction i've just published the uh italian version of it i got it translated into italian Last a couple of weeks ago, because Italians are obviously big Modigazzi fans, so hopefully that will take off as well. Okay, I did see that, and I'm thinking that's interesting. It didn't, and obviously didn't put two and two together. Um, and I just thought, oh well, I guess he's going to translate it into like 300 different languages, and this is just the first one. But uh, it obviously makes sense, yeah, Italian. Okay, before we close, can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Just you and me. <laughs> and the whole wide world. What was it like living on a yacht with your whole family for eight years? I mean, it was a big yacht by the sounds of it, but still. Well, I guess um, sort of going back to 1980, whenever I managed to get that place in the yacht race, come back through south and the North Atlantic, um, I sort of forgot about that side of my life until I got to Dubai and I couldn't afford to pay the, the accommodation costs out there horrendous. Oh. So it was actually cheaper to buy a boat and live in a boat for two for the price of two years' rent and bought the whole boat. Wow. Um but it's it's like a lot of things, it's everything's comparative. Once you get used to having a smaller smaller space, um you don't need a big space, you don't need a big house. You know, you've got everything you need in a smaller space. Once you get used to not having space to leave all your rubbish lying around so it's just a matter of focus in the mind but it was great fun i guess there's not really a lot of room to even have rubbish so that works no. how, how tall are you about five ten did you have clearance oh yeah it was, it was 47 foot yard yeah yeah but so I, I don't you, you can tell i don't know anything about yachts <laughs> so. So, well you could bang your head there's always lots of things to bang into in a boat you gotta <laughs> Like your head, your toes. Usually, your toes are the main problem because it's, it's, you'd be barefoot in Dubai. It was quite hot, so you'd <laughs> be knocking you into something or other. But that was a it was a great experience. Um, my daughter was from five to about eleven or twelve, so she was so brought up quite a few of her formative years on the, living on a boat. So whether that will come back to haunt her or whether she'll appreciate it in these years <laughs> to, to, years go forward. We'll find out. Living in a house must have, even a small house must have felt like a mansion at the time yeah. that she did done that. Wow. 
Okay. Anything I haven't asked you? Anything you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered a little, covered my whole life story in half an hour, have we? <laughs> yeah, forty minutes. <laughs> forty minutes. <laughs> okay. there too. Oh yeah. dear. Well, you've impressed the hell out of me. I mean, I uh, I had to sell my bike a, a few years ago just because my knees are so bad, and I was gonna if I stopped, I would fall over. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that wasn't very safe. But um, anyways, I've you've inspired me to. Uh, yeah, to, to read the book and uh, yeah, maybe do it with a nap beside me. Just well, to... I met a guy in met a guy in Australia. who was ninety two and he had a similar problem. So he bought a sidecar. He bought an old, he had an old vintage sidecar, which he'd got an angle grinder to and put a starter motor on it, <laughs> so he could start it and ride. This is ninety two years old. Incredible guy. I will admit, there's always, I... there's always a solution to these things. You just need to. Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I look at trikes now with a little bit of, hmm, that might Maybe. solve my problem. <laughs> not going to fall over when I stop. Ah, dear. Okay. Chris, thank you. Uh, your website link. Or do you have that website still, or is that? Yes, it's chrisdonaldson.world. Uh, <laughs> you can order a book direct there, or it's on Amazon or eBay in UK. But Amazon is a, it's a company we love to hate, but they do do everything uh they cover yeah. the whole world i can sell a book from belfast all over the world it's quite amazing yeah it is pretty amazing yeah yeah okay a website link is in the show notes uh link to the book will be on your page at boomwithbang.com that's my website listeners if you have thoughts on today's show please talk to us more importantly though just go and buy chris's book share this episode whether you love pushing one's limits stories or whether you push your limits vicariously like me. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Chris Donaldson, thank you so much for being my guest today, for sharing just a few of the adventures with us and giving me more vicarious thoughts. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Have a great rest of the week. You too. I very rarely put an addenda on to podcast episodes, but this time I wanted to tell you I followed up on my promise to buy Chris's book. Oh my goodness. Whether you're a writer like me who is happier with no surprises, if you, like me, enjoy living your biggest adventures vicariously, or if you're a fan of adventure stories, Chris's book will not disappoint. I seriously could not put it down. The link to buy the book is in the show notes and on Chris's page at the podcast web website. And that link is also in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in today. Mm-hmm.